Well, I'd like to get a hold of the individual that, in, that invented the comments box and just ask them what they were thinking would happen with that. Because so often, I don't know if you've ever been at a, at a business or a church or uh, some organization where there was a comments box, but so often the comments in the comments box are not uh, encouraging. They're usually comments that, uh, well, really you could just call it the gripe box. <coughs> Several years ago at the Bridger Wilderness area up in Wyoming, they got some comment cards from visitors that read as follows. So this is out in the wilderness area. The comments said this, the trails need to be wider so that people can walk holding hands. Trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. <laughs> Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the area of these pests. Please pave the trail so they can be plowed of snow during the winter. Chairlifts need to be in some places so that we can get to wonderful views without having to hike to them. <laughs> the coyotes make too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. <laughs> That's great. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there a way I can get reimbursed? Reflectors need to be placed on trees every 50 feet so people can hike at night with flashlights. Escalators would help on steep uphill sections. In the wilderness, escalators. A McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead, of course. The places where trails do not exist are not well marked. <laughs> and this final one's great. Too many rocks in the mountains. <laughs> Life in the wilderness. Boy, it could be tough. I don't know if you've noticed, but most trails in life go uphill. Seems like no matter what direction you're headed, it's uphill. And there are rocks. And there are all these things by way of metaphor and we carry around with us a comments box, don't we? It's called our heart. It's called our minds. It's called our attitudes and our spirits. And we often leave comments. What's funny about these comments that I read from uh, this Wyoming wilderness place is that they're complaining about things that can't change can't change. I mean, trails are going to go uphill. <laughs> there are going to be animals. Yes, there are rocks. There's no changing this. But this is true because often what we complain about, what they were complaining about, and often what we complain about are things that God has put there. Let's look together at the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers. I've called this message, How to Cure That Complaining Spirit, because it's a challenge. 
We walk uphill a lot. We find a lot of rocks on our trails. And truth be told, most of what we're complaining about when we leave comments in the box is complaining to God. We may talk to other people about it, but ultimately, our complaint is to God. What we're doing in this series of messages is just taking a single message from each of the 66 books of the Bible. We've gone through the first three books, Genesis, looked at God's desire to bless. He created his creation. He decided to bless it. And, of course, sin entered the equation and tainted that blessing. It didn't eradicate it, but tainted it. God chose one man, Abraham, through whom he would bless the world. And he began his process of uh, building Abraham's descendants. They went down to Egypt, numbered 70 people at the end of the book of Genesis. And then the book of Exodus shows that these 70 multiplied into a nation of a couple of million that were ultimately enslaved by Egypt and then uh, delivered by God miraculously through the Exodus. We saw last time in the book of Leviticus sort of an odd book from our perspective, a Christian perspective, because it has so many laws called Leviticus because it's written for the priests or the Levites, Leviticus. And it talks about how to basically regain and sustain fellowship with God through a number of laws, one of which we looked at last time. But the book of Numbers brings us to the people leaving, finally, Mount Sinai and begin to head uh, to the direction of the Promised Land. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers is called Numbers because there were the people were numbered. There was a census taken. In fact, there were two censuses taken, one at the beginning of the book and one at the end of the book. And there were two taken because in between these two censuses, do you say censuses or sensi? I'm not sure. <laughs> between these two censuses, there, were, there was a significant event that affected their population. Everybody died. And so, you know, the first census is kind of no good now. You've got to take, take another one. So the book of Numbers is called that because of these, this significant change in the census that were taken. Numbers 11, let's read the first few verses here, and then we'll, we'll begin getting into, into the, uh, to the story. <clears throat> now, the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Taberah is a Hebrew word that means burning. So no particular comment, complaint is given here of what particularly is that they're complaining. We're just, they're just complaining of adversity. Life in the wilderness is tough. I mean, it's uphill sometimes. And here they are complaining, and the Lord read the comments from the comments box and sent some fire out on the outskirts of the camp. Wouldn't that be great 
it would kind of be fun, you know, just for a day or so to be God and to have the the power, you know, every time somebody complains, this little blowtorch pillar of fire comes down and takes care of the problem. But um, honestly, we'd all be walking around with charred heads if that was the case, wouldn't we? God heard it, we're told, and he didn't appreciate it. That was nice, kind of dramatic, <laughs> dramatic music. Well, this is, this is why, by the grace of God, they were able to continue. By the grace of God, they were able to continue. Not all of them were taken out. But also, by the grace of God, it's why all of us make it past the age of two when we start talking. Because from down deep in our hearts, we have a complaining nature. We don't have a grateful nature. It's part of our fallen nature is to complain and to gripe and to whine. And the people, uh, the people did this because the wilderness was difficult. So and just as soon as God has done dealing with one gripe, now he has to deal with the next one. Look at the very next verse, verse 4. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at except this manna. It sounds like a, a teenager sitting there staring at a plate of vegetables, doesn't it? I don't want to eat this. I can remember so well the many times that green bean casserole was stuck in front of me, and I'd literally, I mean, it would be a face-off between my parents and me, and uh, it, it was terrible. It was flat-out rebellion on my part. And God's people were doing the same thing. God provided for them food in a place where there was no food. He provided manna, manna, which was... Uh, got like wafer flakes that tasted like honey. It was probably quite delicious. But the problem is they were sick of it. That's what they had been eating. And that's all they've been eating. So it's been a long time since we've had meat. We're tired of this, you know, this all-carb diet. We want some protein. And so they're complaining that they don't eat meat. And notice, too, they say, we remember See those words? We remember how good we had it in Egypt. But now our appetite is gone. Or literally, if you look in your margin, my margin says our soul is dried up. It says our appetite is gone, but literally our soul is dried up. And the, word, the Hebrew word for soul doesn't just mean the immaterial part of who you are, like your spirit the, the word for soul is a word that means your whole self. Your emotions, your physical body, your, your spirit, everything about you is the Hebrew word there for soul. And the idea is our entire lives are affected because we're not having meat. They had allowed this to basically consume all of who they are. Our lives are dried up. To which you want to say, wait a minute. 
you say you remember. Don't you also remember that you were slaves in Egypt? Didn't you cry out to the Lord for deliverance from that? Didn't he deliver you through a powerful hand from all that? We remember how good we had it in Egypt. What selective memories. We struggle with this kind of complaining too. I don't know if you, in an honest moment, can admit that, but I sure can. Sometimes I'll look at some of the things in the past that I miss, and I'll forget the context sometimes in which that happened. God was so gracious. He has been so gracious in our lives, hasn't he? We all struggle with that. Whether, whatever it is we miss from the good old days, whether it's leeks or onions or whatever was on your menu that you miss. And think about maybe your, your life before Jesus Christ. Are there things about your unsaved life that you miss? There probably are. There probably are. But the reality is, along with that came hell. Came being enslaved, and God redeemed us from that. He graciously redeemed us. When we're struggling with missing a part of our past that we shouldn't be missing because of the context that God brought us out from, we are craving two incompatible worlds. Two worlds that don't come together. A lot of times we'll set up the standards by which God should rule the world or our lives because that's often what it is we're really concerned about in our walk with God. And then we'll complain that God lets us down. When God fails to open a door for us to enter into that ideal life that we want, when he doesn't meet our expectations, we'll feel like he's failed us. And the reality is our expectations have failed us, not God. We have set up expectations that God never promised to meet. We will begin at that point often to make, start making decisions based on feelings of entitlement, as if, Lord, I've waited long enough, and we'll move ahead. God is welcome to come along as an optional guest, but we're moving forward. We deserve. I've waited long enough, and it's time. Grumbling about God's provisions, this text shows us, amounts to rebellion against God. When we complain about what God hasn't done, here it's food, but they had food. They just didn't like what they had. Now take that and put it in another area of your life where maybe God's provided. You just don't like what he's provided. And so we come to him with our complaint. We're basically saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. And here's the problem with that. The problem is that we only have human brains. And they're limited. They're short-sighted. They're impatient. They're often very selfish. Only eternity is going to show how often God's best answer to us was to say no. No, I'm not going to let you have that. Because I know what you don't know. 
You're looking right now. I'm looking at the next five years. And I know what's going to happen if I say yes to that. Because sometimes saying yes is a judgment. And we see that in this very instance. They craved meat. So, look at what happened. Look down at verse 18. Here's God's response. God told Moses, Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were well off in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. And you have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? What selective memories? We were well off in Egypt? Why did we ever leave Egypt? They had begged God to deliver them from Egypt. And he did. God gave them what they wanted, and they became sick of it as well. God said, you're going to be so sick of this meat, you're going to eat it for a whole month. And they became sick of the meat, too, because what they were eating wasn't the problem. They got sick of the meat just like they got sick of the manna. The problem was them. The problem wasn't God's provision. You don't need to turn there, but maybe jot in your margin or just think about this verse from Psalm 106, verse 15. The old King James Version translates it this way, speaking of this incident. He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. New American Standard says a wasting disease. He gave them a wasting disease. But I like the King James Version there because it says, He gave them what they wanted. But along with that was a withdrawal. They got leanness in their soul. Sometimes God saying yes to what we beg him for is not a blessing. It's a judgment. When we reject God's provision for us, often we will find the alternative just as nauseous and disgusting. Because the problem isn't with the provision. The problem is with we who receive it. Think about the Garden of Eden. You don't have to look far in human history to see this played out. Very large, very large letters. The deception in life often is that life after whatever it is we long for that's outside of God's will is going to be better. In fact, that's Satan's lie. That was his first lie. God's holding out on you. The reason you don't have whatever it is you're missing, in this case it was meat, is because God's not provided or God doesn't want you to have that. If you would just have that, everything in your life would be better. If you just get the new iPhone, it's all you need. Everything all of a sudden is going to change. If you just get that new car, whatever, whatever it is. Now, there's nothing wrong with a new iPhone, a new car, and there's nothing wrong with meat. But if that is what your hopes are set on, then it's going to be disappointing. 
because nothing fulfills us like God. Only the Lord can do it. Well, look at Moses' response. God says, look, I'm going to give you all this meat. Now look at Moses' response on verse 21. He's just, he can't believe it. Moses said, the people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month? Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? The Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Moses basically says, look, we've got 600,000 on foot, which probably refers to the men, the foot soldiers. We have a nation of a couple of million people. Moses is saying, where are we going to get meat? We're out here in the middle of nothing. If we got all the fish in the sea, would that be enough? Moses is saying, I don't see how you're going to do it, Lord. And God asks this wonderful question, is the Lord's power limited? Literally, he asks, is the Lord's arm too short? And it doesn't mean that, you know, God's got a short arm. It means, is God not able to provide? Is his arm so short that he's not able to do exactly what he says he can do? And then he says, now you will see whether my word will come true for you or not. A similar question was asked by Jesus' disciples, remember, before the feeding of the 5,000? If we spent, you know, all this denarii, where would we find bread to feed such an overwhelming crowd? And Jesus' response was basically, bring me what you have. And, and he multiplied it. Jesus made it sufficient. It's the same principle that God often puts us in a context of lack. Because he wants us to see his power. One of the first things that he does for us is let us see the lack. He'll convince us of the lack. And our response in that moment is so essential. Instead of crying out to God and complaining to God, we cry out to God and say, Lord, you can do anything. I'm in a situation of lack. Please provide. I have, I have confidence that you can do it. Your arm is not too short. But like Christ in Gethsemane, but if it's your will, would you please do it? I know you can. I'm just not sure if it's your will. That's the prayer to pray when we're struggling. God can provide outside the limitations of our understanding. Look down at verse 31 at what happened. Verse 31, Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea. And let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. The people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Literally, you could translate the text, two cubits over the surface of the ground. It's probably not, two cubits is about three feet deep. It's probably not three feet high, deep of quail all around, but rather, I like the way the New International Version translates it. 
it's more the idea that it's um, about that the birds flew three feet off the ground so that they were easy to catch. The idea was that they were easily accessible all around the camp. All you basically had to do was walk out and just grab them and put them in your bag. And the person, we're told, that gathered the very least gathered 10 homers. A homer is not one trip around the baseball diamond. Ten, 10 homers is about 60 bushels. That is, the person that gathered the least gathered 60 bushels. This is probably more than you can eat. Certainly, far more than was needed to be gathered. The people were greedy. Look at the next verse. Verse 33. While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed. <laughs> oh, oh, what a bummer. Before it was even chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kirbrot Hata'ava, which means the graves of the greedy, because there they buried the people who had been greedy. Wow. Greed often is the blood brother of a complaining, of somebody who's never satisfied. The Dear, a Dear Abbey column years ago had a poem by a man named Jason Lehman. Listen to this poem. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom, the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind. <laughs> Without limitations. My life was over and I never got what I wanted. Wow, how insightful. It's always the good old days or, or the next season to come that holds the fulfillment of our dreams. And it's an illusion. It's such an illusion. Wherever we are now is where God wants us to be. Now, I don't mean if you're in an abusive situation that God wants you to be in an abusive situation. There's injustice, no doubt. And there are solutions, God willing, to any unjust situation that you find yourself in. I'm not talking about exceptions. I'm talking about the norm of looking at the grand scheme of life and wishing that we were somewhere else in it. Fanny Crosby lived 95 years and was blind since childhood. Listen to what she wrote. This is a convicting little couple of words. She said, oh, what a happy soul am I. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. 
to weep and sigh because I'm blind? I cannot and I won't. And she wrote that when she was eight years old. I love that Fanny Crosby said that she was grateful to God that she was blind most of her life it's because the first person she would see would be Jesus. What a great perspective. Well, thankfully, Israel has learned its lesson. Look at the next chapter. Chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not also spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Whenever it says, and the Lord heard it, you know that what happens next is probably not a great thing. But notice, we're told the real reason behind their complaint. It was who Moses married. It had nothing to do with Moses being the one who spoke, that the Lord only spoke through Moses. That was an excuse. What was the real issue was personal, and the Lord heard it. The Dallas Morning News uh, used to have a, a, a bit in their sports section that was called the Whiner of the Week. Do you remember that? It was a while back. I looked uh, this morning and I didn't see it, so maybe they got rid of it. But there was a section in there called the Whiner of the Week, where each week they would pick a sports figure that they thought should be muzzled because they were whining. And one week they chose this particular baseball player, I won't m mention his name, but they picked him because he had cussed his manager. And one reader, after reading about this, wrote in and said this, anyone making eight and a half million dollars and batting less than 300 and blasting his manager publicly needs to be tarred, feathered, and placed in stocks for a week. <laughs> I read that and thought, you know, that's kind of what happened to Miriam. Miriam got the Winer of the Week Award because right after this, she was struck with leprosy and she had to stay outside the camp for a week because of this, because of her complaint against Moses. Interesting, it wasn't just Miriam who had to deal with this, but the entire nation was delayed a week because of this incident of Miriam and Aaron's complaining against Moses. Here's a principle that is fairly convicting, and that is that a complaining spirit hinders our progress in God's will. The nation couldn't move. For a week they were stuck because of what had happened simply by Miriam and Aaron complaining. Well, it's a principle that we see written large in the, the chapters that follow. We won't read all the details of it, but you are probably familiar with chapters 13 and 14. I think we've actually talked through chapters 13 and 14 before. It's a great message looking at a new year because it looks at the future. God's plan for your future includes giants. Moses sent out spies that came to Kadesh, which is at the southern border of the Promised Land down in the Negev, just before you enter into the hill country. And it's in the, uh, in the wilderness down and down south. 
Moses sent out spies into the land, basically a reconnaissance team, to go and check it out and bring back a report. What's the land like? Well, they did. They were gone for 40 days. They came back. And here's the report. The land is indeed everything God said it was. It's fantastic. But there are giants in the land. Ten of the 12 tribe uh, spies said, we're not going up. We can't do it because the, the giants are too big. But only Joshua and Caleb said, but our God is bigger. Let's go for it. And the people elected or determined uh, we're not going to do it. We're not going to go forward. In fact, let's elect another leader and go back to Egypt. You know, because we're hungry. We want to go back to Egypt. Well, the Lord had a response to this. If you look down chapter 14, down at verse 27. Numbers 14, 27. God says, How long shall I bear with this evil generation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. As a result, God basically said that that generation who didn't believe that they could enter the land wouldn't enter the land. They would wander for 40 years. It took 40 days for the spies to go in and out. God says because of that, it's going to be 40 years that you're going to wander in this wilderness until this entire generation, this unbelieving generation that won't trust me, is gone. And a new generation that I can start over with I'll take them into the land. Only Joshua and Caleb, out of the entire couple of million, would enter the land. Everybody else, including Moses, would die before entering. Amazing. Well, let's look at one more place, chapter 21. The old generation in these chapters we're fanning through here die. And in Numbers chapter 21, we've got a brand new generation. Once again, poised at the same place they were before, at Kadesh Barnea. Now, here they are, about to potentially enter the land again. We won't read chapter 20, but you can sort of look at it and remember in your mind what it's about. This is where Moses was told to speak to the rock, but instead, verse 11, he struck the rock, and God told him, because, in verse 12, because you've not believed me to treat me as holy, you will not bring this assembly into the land. So even Moses now is going to be prevented from entering the land because of his unbelief at God. Interesting that this unbelief at Kadesh Barnea, both for Israel in chapters 13 and 14, and for Moses, here in chapter 20, disqualified them from the privilege of entering the land. So unbelief here doesn't necessarily mean, obviously, that they were going to go to hell, ultimately, because Moses is included in this group. We're talking about just this practical daily faith that's necessary to walk with God. And uh, amazing that even Moses was, was kept out of the land.
it's very sobering for us as we think about that. Because if it happened to Moses, then it can also happen to us for whatever it is God's will is for our future. But Numbers chapter 21, um, basically due now to Israel's lack of faith, they've wandered and now they're poised again to enter the promised land. But instead of entering from the south, they, they go around and they ask, can we, they ask Edom, can we enter from the other side? Now, I don't know how well you know your geography, but if you think about, uh, well, see, you probably got a map in the back of your Bible. Look at, see if you can find a map in the back that shows just Israel. It's probably not going to give you all the way down to the uh, Red Sea. Most maps just kind of keep it. Yeah, even my, my maps don't do that. Bible maps are the worst. You need an atlas. If you don't have an atlas, you need to get an atlas. But anyway, they went all the way down to the, to the Red Sea. Not, uh, not the Red Sea that they crossed in uh, Egypt. That's, uh, that's the other gulf. There are two gulfs. If you look at the Red Sea, it's sort of like a, a two branches of it. And so anyway, the one they crossed was on the eastern side, which is near modern Elat in the Gulf of Aqaba. But uh, anyway, they went all the way south instead of going straight up into Israel. Why? Well, let's look. Chapter 21, verse 4. Chapter 21, verse 4 says this. They set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. This is the new generation saying exactly what the old generation had said. Things don't change. They were taught well. Boy, there's a lot in these two verses. But instead of focusing on verse 5, which we sort of have already looked at, of complaining about God's provision, look at verse 4. The people became impatient because of the journey. Initially, they had requested to go through Edom, which would have been much faster. But instead, they went around Edom, all the way down to the south to the, to, toward the Red Sea, and then up on the other side to go around Edom. Instead of going through it, they went all the way down and around it. It was a long detour. And the people became impatient because of the journey. They did not like this long, long detour. Why take the long way around? Well, as the journey unfolds, we won't get in, into the details of it, but here's the bottom line. They ended up going, instead of entering Israel from the south, which would have been the straight shot, straight up from the south, they went all the way around and entered it from the middle at, at Jericho. To basically, when they entered it from the middle and then went straight into the hill country, they divided the entire nation. It was the strategy of divide and conquer. To now they could, they could face each part of the land one at a time rather than having to start from the bottom and just plow all the way up. So what do you know? God knew exactly what he was doing. There was a strategy in it because God saw the map from above. 
He didn't see it as we see it. Sometimes the most direct path that God wants for us is the long way. Think about that. Sometimes the most direct path for God's will in our lives is the long way. Listen to this quote from Bill Lawrence's great book called Wilderness Wanderings, Learning to Live the Zigzag Life. If you want a great book to read, I recommend it. Wilderness Wanderings, Learning to Live the Zigzag Life by Bill Lawrence. This is what he writes. Think of how quickly God could have taken Israel to the promised land if they would have trusted him. They would have gotten there in two years, not 40 years. Here's what we must realize. God gets us out of the wilderness as quickly as he can, but never before we are ready to move forward. That may be why some of us never find fruitfulness. When we finally emerge from the wilderness and look back at our zigzag line, we realize that it was the most direct route God could have taken in our lives. In fact, the only route he could take us. That's insightful. Because often it seems that God needlessly extends our journey We wait and we wait and we wait, and yet God continues to take us the long way. And like Israel, we become impatient because of the journey. This is taking way too long, God. I know a much faster way to get to the promised land. But in hindsight, we see how God used the journey, how God used the zigzag long way to prepare us for a future that we didn't know how to be prepared for. There was an American tourist found alive after wandering 43 years in West Australia's Great Sandy Desert. And he said this. He he had gotten lost. And he said this, I'm hungry and I'm tired. Enough of this walking around. He said he began the journey to, quote, spend a while on my own, just nobody else around, just to make peace with God, I guess. The, The... The beauty of it, I hate to say the beauty of it because he got lost, but the beauty of it is um, he got lost. In searching to make peace with God, he got lost. Because that's not how you do it. Peace with God comes by recognizing what has taken peace from God away from you. And that's something called sin. Something we all have. We'll never have peace with God as long as we have sin between us and God. It is a barrier that we can't get around. But the great news, the good news, in fact, is what the Bible calls it, is that Jesus has died on the cross to take that sin away. And now there's no barrier. All we have to do is believe that, that Jesus has died for our sins, and now we have peace with God. We are justified in his sight. That's great. But you know, even as Christians, we may still lack peace. Not because we're fearful of the afterlife, but because we're frustrated with this life. We lack peace because we're not trusting God for the day-to-day things. We trust Him for eternity that we can't see, which is sort of odd, isn't it? But we struggle to trust Him for next week or for today. The issue is the same as it was in the book of Numbers. 
The issue was faith. So on our, on our journey, on your journey, there are two views. There's what we see and there's what God sees. There's a journey that he's leading us down. And there's two views. There's what God sees and there's what we see. We struggle to see around the next corner, right? But God sees the map from above. And so he knows the best way to go. He knows the zigzag trail is the best way to go. Not, not the straight path that we want to go. Not the straight, impatient, give it to me now. But the zigzag path that develops our character, that actually truly prepares us for the future rather than the straight and narrow, the straight way that we want to go. God's goal for us, the very, very best he could possibly give us, isn't simply found from taking us from here to there, but the best that he has is helping us to know him, to grow to know him, not simply to give us food, not simply to take us from here to there, but is to help us to know him. The book of Numbers, in a way, is a very sad book, but it's also a book of great hope because it shows how God's grace undergirded a complaining people, and that's good news for us, isn't it? Because the comment box in our hearts is constantly dropping cards in it, and often those cards are grumbling. God hears those. God reads those. And instead, we need to come to him not with complaints, but to say, Lord, I don't get it. I just don't get it. It would make so much more sense to dot, 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 fill in your inestimable wisdom there. But God sees the truth, doesn't he? Over and over, we see that God takes us places that we would never choose, we would never choose, in order to give us what we could get no other way, and that's himself. Let's pray. Father, this book, the book of Numbers, is such a convicting set of chapters because over and over in it we see Israel complaining and griping from one generation to the next, having rejoiced that you take, took them out of Egypt, now they complain that you've taken them out of Egypt. And it's convicting, Father, because we see ourselves in it. If we're honest, we can see that we drop these comments in the comment box that complain of your provision. We don't like what you've given. That complain of your timing because, frankly, you take way too long to get us to where we want to go. Thank you that you love us so much to listen to our complaints, but also not always to give in to them, but to continue to say no because you know what's best. You know the timing that's best. You know the provision that's best. That you love us enough to give us what we need, not what we want. So give us the faith to believe that this is occurring, because this is what Scripture teaches. And if we're honest, we can look at our past and see this is what you've done for us without fail every year of our lives. Hindsight proves it true. So give us the faith that looks to the future with the same confidence with which we look at our past. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy, next time.